And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, I'm Anna Khalid. I'm professor of history at Carleton College in Minnesota. I recently wrote a piece for Persuasion titled Don't Ban Depictions of Muhammad from the Classroom. This piece was inspired by what happened at Hamlin University where an adjunct professor was dismissed because she showed a 14th century Islamic painting of Muhammad as part of her Islamic art class. This was an optional exercise and students did have the chance to turn their screens off. Plenty of content warnings were given in the syllabus and also within the classroom setting itself. However, one particular student found this offensive to her Muslim sensibilities, and this triggered the DEI bureaucracy of the college to weigh in, who decided that the incident was Islamophobic and dismissed the professor for that reason. I wrote this piece in defense of the professor who showed this piece of art. I'm offended by what Hamlin did at many levels. First, I'm offended as a professor because this is a direct attack on our academic freedom to teach our material with integrity. Second, I'm offended because I'm a historian and the DEI bureaucracy really cannot have a say on what we show as primary materials, as primary texts to our students. For historians, primary sources are our bread and butter and we are the ones who are in the best position to decide what our students need to learn. And finally, I was offended by this, most significantly as a Muslim. As a Muslim academic, I feel the position that Hamlin took was frankly one that flattened the diversity within the Islamic tradition and endorsed one particular view of Islam, which says that such depictions of Muhammad are forbidden. One of the things that the Hamlin case shows us is that the DEI bureaucracy, or DEI Inc., as I call it, is fundamentally antithetical to academic freedom. I'd like to say that us professors, we've been doing diversity before it became sexy on college campuses via the DEI bureaucracy. We've been teaching about the diversity within the Islamic tradition for a long time, and not just the Islamic tradition, but more broadly. This case has implications not just for how we teach Islam and Islamic art, but for how we teach, period. My fundamental concern is that such attacks on academic freedom are a great disservice to our students because at the end of the day, our academic freedom is there so that our students can have a good education. Amna Khalid's piece called Don't Ban Depictions of Muhammad from the Classroom was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Charles Kenny. Charles is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development and the author of a number of interesting books, including Getting Better and The Upside of Down. We had a conversation about some of the most important topics there are. We talked about how much progress the world is making on affording humans a decent way of life. We talked about whether Bill Easterly, a former guest on this podcast, is right to be very skeptical of the effectiveness of development aid, or whether development aid is actually having a real impact in the world and could have an even bigger positive impact, as Charles Kenny argues. We argued about what to make of the movement for effective altruism that has been in the news recently, and how to think about climate change and the best ways to deal with it. 
I learned a lot from this conversation. I had a lot of fun during this conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Charles Kenny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. You've written fascinatingly about a very broad range of topics, and I intend to get into every single one of them. That to start off with, how much progress has the world made towards being a better place over the course of our lifetimes? Our lifetimes. A lot. There is a long way to go, and a fair amount of progress was made before our lifetimes. But I think probably, you know, if I was to choose one single measure over the course of our lifetimes, what uh, the number of Children who die before the age of five must have gone down by more than three quarters, probably seven eighths, actually. And, you know, I think if you just want one measure of progress, it is parents not having to bury one of their children. And that has gone over the course of our lifetime from something that would be normal and expected in most of the world to something that is extremely rare almost everywhere. Yeah, it's a stunning change. You know, I think there's sort of a way of naturalizing what the state of affairs was in the past, that even in the most affluent countries until a century a little longer ago, people expected that to be the case. And, you know, I suppose the suffering must have been ever so mildly lessened by the fact that you knew there was a risk of that and those other people who had gone through it as well. But nevertheless, the pain of having developed a deep relationship and a love with your child that then dies must have just cut people up effectively in the same way than it would today. I'm sure you're right. Certainly coping mechanisms kick in and there were sort of social norms around how one was meant to behave that did vary. But you can go back to the Romans and they've got, you know, poems about the sadness of losing their daughters and stuff. It is not a modern thing to be upset about the death of a child. It is a permanent state of humanity. So even with those coping mechanisms, even with the sort of social norms and stuff that probably helped, it still was a terrible thing. And it is a terrible thing that is much rarer. And it is the result of a whole bunch of other rather nice stuff. So all of us are getting less horrible bouts of diarrhea. All of us are getting smallpox considerably less often than we used to. Nearly all of us are living in nicer houses. The vast majority of the world has access to electricity. The vast majority of the world has access to improved water sources and so on. All statements that were just not true 70, 80 years ago. So the progress is really widespread, but seems to me that if you want one single measure, it's hard to beat. And so what is the reason for those improvements? Because I feel like there's just a natural negativity bias in the news where the sudden flood or the two or three months famine is going to make the front page of a newspaper, the sort of slow, gradual improvements in all kinds of everyday systems, which actually have brought about this really stunning improvement in this metric and many other metrics, you know, by the nature more gradual and harder to capture and compelling stories. But what is the underlying causal mechanism here? Why have instances of infant mortality, for example, reduced by seven, eight over the course of a half century? Just to be clear, I think the famines ought to be on the front pages and the remaining misery ought to be on the front pages. The fact that we've made all of this progress, that you know, the fact that these are things that we can deal with makes the fact they still happen even worse. You know, we're more morally culpable than we used to be in a world where we couldn't do anything about it. And the reason we're so morally culpable is because of what lies behind it, which is largely technology change, which is a global public good, if you will. The fact that I know how to treat diarrhea with sugar and salt and water doesn't stop you doing the same to help your kid not die from that condition. So 
because it is a global public good that is behind it, it ought to be a global public good that really has spread worldwide. You know, we are talking about really cheap interventions, especially when it comes to child health. You know, we're talking about vaccines that cost cents to make and to deliver. We're talking about sugar salt solutions in water, really cheap. But we're also, importantly, talking about the idea and the importance of making these things universal. I do think credit to the planet that actually most people are rather disgusted with the way that the COVID-19 vaccines rolled out, for example. The very low-risk people in rich countries had access to five or six times the vaccines they needed, whereas very high-risk people in low-income countries had no access at all for most of the first year we had these vaccines. That is something that did, I think, cause moral outrage around the world, as it should. But frankly, I don't think the moral outrage would have been as strong in the 1800s. You know, we are more of a global community. You know, we do think that everybody should have access to these technologies. And, you know, there's a widespread sense, vaccine on our side, that these technologies work. And that's also, you know, to some extent, a new thing. So it's not just about technologies. It is about ideas. It's about delivery systems, so on. Institutions, therefore. Again, sort of to come down to the single answer, it's technologies. And the sort of simple way to think about that is the average person on planet Earth uses, I think it's like 200 times the amount of energy that they themselves could produce by bicycling away all day on a dynamo. We have just made the creation of stuff incredibly efficient and cheap through the use of machines. And we've made the movement of that stuff incredibly efficient and cheap for the same reasons. So anything that can be solved with stuff has become fairly cheap and easy to solve. And that certainly applies to global health. A subtitle of one of your books is Why Global Development is Succeeding and How We Can Improve the World Even More. You've told us a little bit about the reasons for you know, the improvement in these really important metrics like child mortality around the world. What is still going wrong and what can politicians, international institutions, what can all of us do to push further progress along? There are still hundreds of thousands of children dying each year from easily preventable diseases. There are still 700 plus million people living on $2.15 a day or less, which is the World Bank's latest measure of extreme poverty. You know, by the way, living on $2.16 isn't enough. More than half the world is still living on less than $10 a day. So there is an immense amount of progress that still needs to be delivered in the sort of stuff basket, if you will, on the making sure that people have enough to eat, they have access to electricity, they have clean water supplies, and so on and so forth. But to be honest, I think, you know, they are stuff challenges, and I think they're the easier thing. In some ways, I kick the question back to you. I think where the problems are larger, and not actually with the stuff elements, it's with the not stuff that we care about. It's about relations, institutions, about sort of how we get along as a planet, You can argue, and, and I'm sure you can argue at greater length, uh, depth and specificity on the decline of violence worldwide. I think we have seen some progress there. We have seen declines in the number of laws that sort of enforce discrimination against particular groups and so on. I mean, I'm not saying we haven't made progress in these areas, but it does seem to have been more halting, seems to have been more likely to suffer reverse and so on, than the progress on these stuff issues, which seem basically to go in one positive direction. Yeah, that's very interesting. I find it hard to think through exactly how we're doing on stuff issues, in part because it depends on what your baseline is. And when you look at the state of democracy around the world, we're doing much better than we did in 1985. We're doing still somewhat better than we did in 1992, 1993. 
but we're doing significantly worse than we did in 2005. So part of this question is, are you comparing us to 50 years ago or 100 years ago, in which case on virtually every metric, we're doing much better than we were. Why are you comparing us to a few years ago? Even within the United States, right? When you look at the depths of despair and this really interesting and concerning phenomenon pointed out by Angus Deaton, that a certain sort of subset of Americans actually is experiencing declining life expectancy for the first time. Well, compared to 50 or 100 years ago, these people are still leading much better lives on average, at least in sort of straightforward stuff terms. But compared to 10 years ago, they may not be. So how do we think about that? The other thing that I find difficult when you look at the argument of somebody like Steven Pinker in his writing about the decline of violence is that I think there's something really compelling there. You know, he's convinced me that these nostalgic treatments of how wonderful the hunter-gatherers had it are just deeply naive. I forget the exact figures, but it's something like one in five or perhaps even one in four hunter-gatherers could expect to be murdered during the lifetime. I mean, you know, just rates of violence which were astonishingly high. And I think there is a very, very long-standing trend towards less violence that he chronicles. Of course, when it comes to interstate conflict, we know that there's phases. And between World War I and World War II, the world looked like it was making progress. And then World War II came. And almost by definition, we're currently in the interwar period between World War II and World War III. And as Tom Lehrer pointed out in the 1960s, if we want any songs to come out of World War III, we better start writing them now. So it's a little hard to think through on those sort of most massive metrics of violence and danger and so on, whether we're in a very large positive interregnum or whether we can actually lastingly avoid that World War Three, which is going to certainly be more deadly than any previous war in human history. One of the things that our mastery over nature has given us is more power to create our own existential risks. And it is hard to measure progress, given the possibility of mutual annihilation via thermonuclear war. How do you measure that? I mean, I sincerely hope it won't happen, obviously, but I think it's reasonably plausible that it won't happen. But, you know, you look at the last year and a half, and surely, even if you thought the risk was very, very small, you've got to think it's a bit bigger now. Yeah. And the consequences of things going wrong just keep getting worse the more technological capacity we have. You know, this is really speculative, and I don't understand nearly enough about physics to know how seriously to take it. But there's this really interesting question of why don't there seem to be that many other intelligent civilizations on planets other than the Earth? And of course, there may be, they may just be too distant for us to have contact with them. We may be too provincial and interesting for them to contact us. But there's at least some physicists who think, you know, there should be more that we could have already discovered, and it's a sort of puzzle while we haven't. And one of the answers that might help to explain that is, well, all the other civilizations, once they reached a certain level of intelligence and technological innovation, blew themselves up. Again, this feels very speculative, but as a kind of thought experiment, I think it's a really interesting way of thinking through, you know, what might await us as a species. May just be that it's a heck of a long way to come and get a pizza. And I hope it's something like that. I feel they wouldn't be interested in getting a pizza, but maybe more interested in getting a human, but you know. <laughs> for the zoo, yes. <laughs> the one I really am not into science fiction, but the one argument I really buy is that if we know anything about the history of colonialism and how it played out for civilizations when other people who, for whatever contingent reasons, happen to be more technologically advanced, made contact with them, 
the fact that we are currently broadcasting our existence out into space for those hypothetical, more advanced aliens to become aware of our location and our existence seems like a very, very foolhardy idea. So this does come back to the broad theme of progress in that I think there was sort of this enlightenment hope that we'd all become rational. You know, Condorcet is busy writing as he's fleeing from the Jacobins, you know, busy writing his book saying, look, we sorted it all out. It's all about rationality. We're going to educate everybody. We're all going to become perfect human beings. We're going to live forever as a result. And that kind of hope does seem a little optimistic today. Maybe I'm just being impatient. Maybe it's just going to take you know another few centuries of rationality. So you know, it may be that humans can never progress to the point of perfection. But just because we're hardwired that way, or maybe hardwired that way, I don't think we need to bring down the rest of the universe with us. Maybe, you know, some of these other aliens don't have the character flaws that maybe we have. Yeah, so it may be that perhaps they have progressed sufficiently technologically and morally to now have a more enlightened attitude towards alien species than, you know, humans had in their history towards different cultural and ethnic groups. Or it may be that we happen not to be very useful to them, but they can very easily and cheaply, you know, get a tax write-off by helping us, by giving us some amazing technology. I guess, philosophically, and this is not, none of this is where I plan to take the conversation, but it's super interesting. The question then is how risk-averse are you? And that depends in part on your assessment of a current state of affairs. And since, as you were saying earlier, I don't think that we're on the whole in a veil of tears on this planet at the moment, taking the risk of advertising our existence to aliens. You know, the best case outcome is that we all finally have, you know, flying brooms or something. But the worst case scenario is, oh, effectively we're colonized in the way in which humans have colonized each other in, in really terrible ways. I think I'm sort of risk averse on that account. I would lean strongly in the other direction, you know, and I do lean in the other direction on GM and on nuclear and on fusion and so on. I accept, you know, there are risks attached. There were surely risks attached to the RNA vaccines from last year. I just think those risks are probably worth it. But I accept also that you can try and put numbers on these risks, but we just don't have the information. We don't have the knowledge in order to pin them down in any way that's detailed enough and specific enough and accurate enough in order for that to be driving how we make decisions. So it does sort of come down to your view of the world as a whole, I guess. I'm not sure you're doing the cause a favor by linking them, but I'm going to persist with a link. What is the argument for why there are rational reasons to be concerned about GM and nuclear and nuclear fission? And why do you think those risks are sort of limited enough and they're worth taking? Because they're new. I mean, nuclear isn't all that new anymore, but they are reasonably new and untested technologies. And, you know, in the past, new and untested technologies have sometimes had unexpected outcomes. I think as a rule, we do well and perhaps too well. And, you know, many would argue we overregulate these new technologies. But I think as a rule, we do well in trying to make sure that the obvious downside risks are addressed before these technologies are spread widely. But I mean, Take, for example, something I'm, again, in favour of, which is gene-drive technology to make mosquitoes barren and stop them having kids and wipe them out. Just to explain, as I understand it, and I may be getting this wrong, the idea is you genetically modify a mosquito in a way where it can outcompete uh, existing mosquitoes, but you make sure that either they can't procreate or they can't carry certain kinds of diseases. And 
the idea is that that may be a way of eradicating malaria, broadly speaking, perhaps some other diseases. Do I have that broadly right? From what I've read, I understand that actually in, in most places, especially most of the problematic mosquitoes is maybe the way to put it, are invasive. And it's probably not that they play a hugely positive role in local ecosystems. I'm not sure we can know that for certainty. And there are surely unknowns in such an experiment. But I think it's probably an experiment worth trying, or at least I certainly did think it was an experiment worth trying before we saw the last year of stunning progress in malaria vaccines and treatments. So maybe the risk is less worth taking now because we have these other options. But you know, it's something that a year ago I certainly would have been in favour of, and I think I still am. So I do accept the risks, but think that we have reasonably good ways to measure them and reasonably good approaches to stagger rollout so that we limit the downside risks. What about the more basic forms of genetically modified crops? I find consistently that this is one of the topics on which I have the most friends whose judgment I generally respect, who I disagree with, and who I think is wrong about this. I mean, especially in Europe, there is just a very, very strong consensus that there's something worrying or perhaps morally bad and probably dangerous around genetically modified crops. Why do you think, as I take it, you do that argument is wrong? I think there's a real marketing problem with the term GM. We have been modifying the genetics of crops since we invented farming, probably before then, just using different approaches over time. Nobody, when they get a cute purebred puppy, says I'm getting a genetically modified dog for effectively that is what it is. Yes, I have to say, I find the purism about genetics in dog breeding really quite scary. I'm not sure about scary, but certainly a little creepy. Creepy. All right. Okay. I worry more about that than I do about the mechanism, if you will. The mechanism we were using before GM, and we still are, is the radiating crops to try and speed up mutations in order to develop different varieties faster. It's not like we weren't mucking with nature before, we're just mucking with nature in a different way. Now it is a new way of mucking with nature, which might make it sort of more dangerous just on the grounds that there are going to be more unknowns. You know, again, I'd say that the level of regulatory oversight is really quite big. The sort of legitimate bit of the GM discussion, I think, is around intellectual property rights, which is, you know, if farmers can't use the seeds that they collect from their own crop um, in order to plant again next year because it's against intellectual property rights, there are some public policy issues there that I think at least need to be addressed and looked at. But sort of on the would I eat GM food debate. Yes, I do. And I don't have a problem with it at all. And thank goodness for genetic modification. Otherwise, some large percentage of the planet couldn't be here because we would have the grain yields that they had in Sumeria. And that wasn't very high. About a year ago, I had Bill Easterly on this podcast. And Bill, I think, is a really smart and thoughtful critic of the promise of development aid effectively saying that it is very hard for giving institutions and nations to know what forms of aid are actually going to be helpful and effective on the ground, pointing out the adverse incentives that are created through it, where suddenly a lot of the smartest people locally go and work for the international NGOs and the organizations that come in with all of the foreign dollars and it distorts the town pool in costly ways pointing out that actual and average nations that receive a lot of development aids don't tend to perform much better than those that don't receive a lot of development aid. I take it that you take those arguments seriously, but you come to a different conclusion in the end. Where do you think Bill Easterly goes wrong in his arguments about this? 
We were just talking about grain yields. The Rockefeller Foundation rather famously played a huge role in the Green Revolution. And I think it would be hard to argue those dollars were wasted. Ask the many, many people worldwide who aren't dead from famine as a result. But I do take Bill's critiques seriously. I think most of them are valid. It's just sort of the extent to which they mean aid as a project is a waste is where I would push back. So, for example, I think Bill is absolutely right that a lot of aid is wasted. You were pointing to the fact that a lot is effectively handed over to NGOs or indeed private companies, usually based in donor countries, who then go to developing countries and spend some of that money locally, spend quite a lot of it on hiring housing and feeding their own expat staff. And, you know, I do wonder about the efficacy of a lot of that aid, I should say, by the way, you know, I was a member of the aid industry, I still probably officially am a member of the aid industry. So, you know, guilty as charged. If you sort of look at the amount of aid that is actually spent by governments and organisations based in the developing world, it is really small. To give you one example, the Washington Metropolitan Transit Authority here in DC gets more of the USAID budget than the government of Uganda. WMATA gets it because apparently it counts as overseas assistance when USAID, the USAID organization, when it buys its staff transit cards, that counts as aid. So anyway, more goes to buying transit cards for USAID staff than does to the Ugandan government. And the Ugandan government is actually one of the top recipients of aid from the United States. So nearly all of the money that is spent on aid, in fact, never reaches governments and local organisations in the developing world. Far more goes to rich country governments, rich country organisations, and so on and so forth. I'm not saying all of that is wasted. I am saying it is fairly amazing, given how little is spent in the way that we traditionally think of I certainly thought about aid as being spent by governments and recipients. Now, how little of it is actually spent that way, that we do see an impact, right? Now, I'm with Bill, but the, the evidence on aid causing large economic growth, I think it's there. I would probably err you know, more on the side of it being there than it not being there, but it's certainly weak. And actually, I'd find it implausible if it wasn't small, because you know, you could say it should be a big impact, but why would you expect it to be a big impact? At the moment, aid, including all of the stuff that's spent hosting refugees in the UK or on Beltway bandits around Washington, DC, you, know, you include all of that stuff, aid about as to you know a little bit less than 0.4%, I think, of the GDP of developing countries. You know, it's not a very large amount of money. If it had a large impact on growth, something would be up. So I don't expect to see a large impact. I think, you know, plausibly you see a small impact. I would agree with Bill. Plausibly you don't. That said, if you, you know, stop thinking macro for a minute and get to specific cases, you know, Bill and I agree that actually if you look at global health, for example, it's hard to argue there hasn't been a role for aid financed activities. You know, to take the sort of uh, US example, if you look at PEPFAR, the, which is the US financed initiative that provides HIV drugs to 
a considerable proportion of the developing world of people who have HIV. It's just obviously saved a whole load of lives, and it is fairly obvious, at least to begin with, that none of that would have been covered by local governments. It was just too expensive. Again, if you look at vaccine rollout, it is really hard. Partially, nearly all the vaccines delivered in lower middle income countries have been purchased by aid. Now, a lot of those would have been purchased by lower middle income country governments, you know, had aid not done that. But those vaccines were around for a long time before they started being aid financed, and they weren't being bought by low and low middle income country governments. So, you know, it's at least plausible, I think, to argue that that a fairly big impact through that channel. So I think you can find cases where it is actually fairly clear that some aid has had a real impact. You can find lots of cases where aid is being used in ways that are incredibly inefficient or, you know, just there's no reason at all to expect they would have an impact on the, on the quality of life of low-middle-income countries. I think if we took more aid from that second category and put it into the first category, you'd see you know even greater impacts. And then maybe we could even add some more money to the budget. It's very interesting. I'm thinking of perhaps a surprising parallel between your response to Bill and the kind of response that I, as a liberal, would give to many advocates of what I've started to call the identity synthesis, the sort of identitarian set of thoughts on the left, which is that they often say, look, these universal values and neutral rules that you know you have in a lot of Western societies, they make this promise of treating everybody equally. But in fact, they don't. In fact, some people are discriminated against and suffer disadvantage and so on. And that's a perfectly fair critique insofar as it goes. I think it's true. Where I differ with most advocates of this ideology is by saying, well, and therefore we should recognize where we are failing to apply those rules fairly in a way that benefits everybody and redouble our efforts to make sure that they too get the benefit of the protections and the rules that we put forward. We've made some progress on that. We can make a lot more progress on that and we should, and that's what we should be fighting for. Well, they tend to say, well, no, there's something inherent about this. This is never going to work. So let's abolish the universal values and neutral rules in order for something that's more specific. This is a long run-up to say part of the debate between you and Bill on this seems to be that he might point to some of the same facts you just talked about, you know, actually the development aid money in the United States goes more to the Washington Transport Authority than to the government of Uganda. That's exactly the kind of thing that always goes wrong. So why should we trust the system to ever get better? Whereas you seem to say, well, no, actually we can recognize some of those pitfalls and avoid them. How do we make progress on this? If we want to make sure that actually more of that aid spending goes on things that really do make a difference and less of it on you know paying the transport passes of people who already have pretty good lives, what transformation would that take? And is it realistic that we might be able to accomplish that transformation? It's hard. It's a reason why I'm sort of happy that sort of level of low impact spending that we see, and I still think you can point to Every dollar was worth pushing into the system because what came out of the other end is so wonderful that it was worth it, even with all of that waste along the way. It is a hard struggle, partially because there is a very junior version of the military-industrial complex in development, the aid-industrial complex, which is people like me who work in development and live in Washington, D.C., as it might be, and like our lifestyles and want to get reasonably well paid, we are much closer to the corridors of power than the ultimate supposed recipients of assistance, and so have more political control over how it is spent, considerably more political control over how it is spent. And we like some of it being spent here. Thank you very much. So 
I'm part of the problem, and that probably makes me, I don't know, maybe that makes me perfectly suited to World 3 yet. Um, I don't know. But it is amazing, if you have a look at the PEPFAR story, this George Bush Jr. era project that provides HIV drugs, you know, it went from sort of zero to many hundreds of millions very quickly. And it did so because a whole bunch of people saw a real problem in developing countries, and there was a real constituency in the United States to fix that problem. And those two things went together to mean that much PEPFAR money does not reach developing countries. But, you know, a lot does, and a lot of HIV drugs do. And it's, you know, reasonably efficient in that sense, aid organisations. So it is something about setting a target that A, can actually help reach, and that means something reasonably small because aid isn't a large amount of money and persuading people that that target is really worth reaching and then sort of the politics fall in line okay we have to reach this target we want to do it reasonably cost effectively how are we going to do that it is probably not by replicating charles kenny three million times um, and having washington dc overrun with charles kenny's it is probably by doing something that involves developing country governments in implementation it is probably something that is more effective one of the things i've been thinking about like many others over the course of the last weeks and months is effective altruism for those who don't know the dickensianly named sam bankman freed sounds close to fraud was a big advocate of effective altruism and so as his crypto empire has collapsed and as it has turned out that it appears that he may have engaged in some illegal practices the ideology of effective altruism has come under questioning alongside it and I have very torn feelings about this because it seems to me that the basic proposition of effective altruism is very compelling and, in fact, very helpful. That when you look at how charitable dollars are spent in a country like the United States, and also, by the way, when you look at how something like dollars in the aid budget are spent, so much of it does go on things that just aren't likely to have a significant impact on improving human welfare. And so to have a organized movement, which says, particularly to some of the biggest donors, hey, when you give, don't just give to your alma mater and don't just give to the town you happen to live in and don't just give to some cause that's sentimental to you. Really think through where your dollars are going to have the biggest impact on saving lives, on improving human development, on transforming the world. Well, that seems like an obviously good approach. I mean, you know, a nil hypothesis, the sort of stance you'd have to embrace to reject that, it seems nearly silly. No, people should give money without any kind of consideration for what's going to make the world a better place. That just seems very, very odd. On the other hand, it does seem that Perhaps the interpretation of what effective altruism means has taken on this weird hue, and it's done it in two or perhaps three ways. The first is the advice that has sometimes been given to young people of, if you want to do something impactful in your life, don't go and do stuff that's going to have a direct impact. Go and earn the most money possible and then donate some significant portion of it. And that feels a little bit like an ideology that's tailor-made to make people feel good about, you know, pursuing the highest earning career, even if it's in industries that at the least don't do much good for the world and at the worst may actually harm it. And then the second, which I think is sort of more 
contingent, I don't know if it comes directly out of the framework, is this strange long-termism that has become very fashionable in effective altruist circles in the last years. This sort of like, look, I mean, when you really think about what's going to have a big impact in the world, and if you make some somewhat strange moral assumptions about the life of a human 10,000 years from now has exactly the same value, and we should consider it in exactly the same way as the life of somebody who's actually alive today and who's our contemporary. And if you then make even more heroic empirical assumptions that there's anything useful and knowable today about how my action in the present moment are going to determine the life of hypothetical people 10,000 years down the line. So if you buy all of those things, then you become obsessed with, you know, how can I make sure that life is best for people 10,000 years from now? And you end up thinking the most effective way of using your money as sort of relatively quixotic attempts like making mass habitable for humans or whatever it may be. So I guess in view of a question, I gave you my opinion, but Charles, how do you think about effective altruism? How can we use the basic insight of effective altruism, which surely we want to hold on to, which is that if we're giving money, as people should, we better think about how to make an impact in the world that's actually positive for humans. And how do we sort of stop us from falling into the kind of hubris that effective altruists appear to often fall into? I think the problem is one of scale, which was Sam Bankman fried at his richest wasn't nearly rich enough, which is to say well, much of the movement, this is unfair to the movement as a whole, but much of the movement is about sort of what can you as an individual do in order to make the world a better place. And Bankman fried was worth, you know, maybe 14 billion at one point, sort of notionally. That's, you know, less than $2 per person on the planet. That's actually not really very much when it comes to planetary change. So partially because of that, it leads to this sort of, we really must maximise the impact of every dollar. No, really must. And these calculations, I mean, to go back to our sort of earlier alien discussion, trying to actually put numbers on the discussion we had then about, well, you know, there's probably a 0.003% chance that aliens will have this opinion. And I think that way, madness lies. But even with the fantastic work they support as a community, when it comes to sort of current present day development, I think that's a bit limiting. They support some wonderful initiatives, including deworming and so on, that, that I think really do have immense payoff for not very much money. But they're, you know, they're sort of thinking too small. I think it's ironic they're thinking too small, because as you say, it's a movement based in utilitarianism. If you go back to Bentham, Bentham wasn't just thinking about how can I donate my money. Bentham was a political player. He wanted to change British politics, and Mill did too. And if you look at Peter Singer's original article, that's sort of the Ur article for the EA movement, and it's about a famine in Bengal, and he's saying, yeah, you ought to give more, but I tell you what, the Australian people ought to be giving 40% of their GDP every year to improving lives in developing countries. This is the scale we need. It's not about individuals, it's about the collective. It's about us all moving towards a world where you know we spend our resources and our time much more effectively in order to deliver better outcomes for all of us. And I really think you sort of miss the trick if you focus in on these comparatively piddling amounts of money, you know, these, these low billions, I mean, really, uh, <laughs> the long-term progress of humanity will be around making all of us move in the direction of valuing everybody's utility vaguely similarly. But the climate discussion is an interesting case where this sometimes happens. So Nick Stern, in his Stern report that came out 
what, 15, 20 years ago now, basically saying, you know, it is economically rational to deal with climate change. I think he's absolutely right. But his calculation in part was based on saying that the utility of everybody in 2100 worldwide is worth the same as everybody's utility today. I think that calculation does suggest that we should do something about climate change. I think it also suggests, just assuming that everybody's utility worldwide is kind of equally valued, that people in the richest countries in the world ought to be paying about an 87% redistributive tax. If you think money's worth the same in a utility sense, but with a declining marginal return, which is what Stern thought, and you think everybody's utility has equal value, massive, massive transfers from rich to poor countries follow not as something you should do in order to make the world better in 100 years, but something you should do in order to make the world better today. And so my plea to the effective altruist community is start thinking bigger. You know, what you were saying about the relatively small amounts involved in philanthropy by what people in the biz call UHNWIs or ultra high net worth individuals is quite interesting. I mean, conservatives on Twitter often make fun rightly of a bunch of commentators on mainstream cable news channels. And a few times it's cropped up in newspapers as well that say, you know, why does Elon Musk buy Twitter when he could solve hunger in the world single-handedly or he could, you know, solve hunger in the United States single-handedly? And it always involves just incredibly atrocious math, you know, failing fifth grade level math. But I guess in a way, what you're saying is the billionaires are in some way making the same mistake. I mean, they realize that they can't single-handedly solve hunger, but at least the movement of effective altruism sort of other indexes on what a few very rich people can accomplish relative to you know, what governments would need to do in order to actually have a real impact on the set of questions. Yeah, and I think the Gates Foundation is an interesting you know, case study here that Gates has started out thinking, you know, we're rich, we're going to solve a bunch of disease issues in developing countries. And they've done a lot of wonderful work on that. But if you look at Gavi, which is the global alliance for getting vaccines in the arms of kids in poor countries, they set it up. But quite quickly, most of the money that goes into Gavi comes from other governments. It comes from the UK, comes from the US, comes from France, comes from Germany, whatever. All of the delivery is done by developing country governments. Most of the expenditure around this vaccine initiative created by Gates is actually, you know, government funded. And I think they realised really quite quickly, yeah, we can have a big impact, but, you know, by golly, nothing compared to what we can have if we motivate governments to act differently. You might have sort of political concerns with that. I am, of course, suggesting, you know, rich people use their money to push governments around to do kind of what they want the governments to do. And there are concerns with that. But it's a force that can be used for good. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. But you need sort of a private initiative to leverage government. We definitely need the government involvement, even just purely on a financial level. I have to say I hadn't thought about that before this conversation in that way. There's one big topic that you've alluded to, but that we haven't gone into detail about in this conversation. And I want to make sure we do that, which is climate. To ask the maximally bland and broad question, where are we at with climate change in 2022? How existentially worried should we be? What is the bad news? But also, what is the good news? Where are the areas where we're making progress? I think we're doing much better than we have the right to expect, to be honest. And partially that's a, a knock on people like me who assumed the way we'd make progress on this global issue is by a globally binding treaty of some description, which 
you know, is not the way we make progress at all. In fact, we've made progress largely because technologies of cheap and carbon-free energy have developed so rapidly. And so, you know, every year the International Energy Agency would put out these forecasts of how much it thought solar power is going to increase worldwide. And every year they would be shockingly inaccurate on the pessimistic side and they seem never to learn their mistake. But anyway, so, you know, year after year, we've been sort of outperforming on that measure, for example. We are pretty close to peak global carbon dioxide output. And, you know, all of this thanks to the involvement of millions of people and some fantastic scientific breakthroughs, a lot of government money going to research and development, not a big international solution. But broadly, I think we are in a better place than we might expect. And it goes back somewhat to the discussion we were having earlier about sort of stuff versus non-stuff problems. Climate is basically a stuff problem. It is it's the mother of all stuff problems, but it's a stuff problem nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> and so those are the problems that sort of traditionally we've actually been comparatively good at dealing with. And we've done it in a way that should come as no surprise to anybody who thinks that non-stuff progress is less fast. We didn't do it by creating a grand new global institution. We did it through sort of technology advance and so on and so forth, which is you know not to downplay, I think, the wonderful recent news out of Washington around actually getting away more finance and incentives for clean energy and so on. I do think that's a really important part of the story. Uh, but it wasn't a global institutional story in the way that I admit I thought was probably the way we would solve this problem. And we're a long way from solving it, obviously. I don't want to get over the top with excitement. But as I say, I think we've made more progress than people like me, at least, had any rights to expect. Help put a little bit of meat on the bones of your relative optimism. So, you know, people who are listening to this and who will say, but the temperatures are rising and we haven't had the agreements and there's all these nightmare scenarios about, you know, runaway feedback loops. You know, what can you say to them to reassure them that actually some progress is happening? What are some concrete measures or metrics which should convince them that, you know, their perception is actually nothing is really happening and things are only getting worse? Where does your different interpretation come from and what can you say to them to sort of explain your point of view? I guess that greenhouse gas emissions and economic output have decoupled in the richest countries. Greenhouse gas emissions are going down. Economic growth is not all we might hope, but it's still going up. We seem to have managed, at least in you know, the richer countries, the thing that needs to happen, which is decoupling output from greenhouse gas emissions to some extent. Again, there is a long way to go. In some ways, we've made the most progress on the easy stuff, not surprisingly. Energy production is not the only thing that has to change. Cement is still a massive producer of greenhouse gases, and we haven't made as much progress in making cement production less of an issue, and so on and so forth. But we have made all of this progress, and importantly, we've made it by making the technologies of zero carbon output cheap. And the reason that's really important is it means that what we're seeing in rich countries will happen sort of naturally, if you will, in lower income countries. So these technologies are becoming, they are not there yet, but they are becoming the low cost option in order to you know, power economies. And when they do that, you don't need a big subsidy mechanism. You don't need a massive tax on carbon in order to have them adopted worldwide because they are just the cheapest way to go. And so that's what gives me real hope is that you know, my preferred solution from 15 years ago was a tax system that would have had to have lasted for all time, or a, you know, a cap-and-trade system, or some way of making people pay for the carbon they produce. There was a never-ending solution, which would have had costs worldwide. If actually what we've got to is zero-carbon technologies being the cheapest technologies out there to produce stuff, you know, 
you're done. You don't need global cooperation from now until kingdom come. The market will take care of it, if you will. Again, we're not there, but we're a lot closer to there than I think anybody really expected 15, 20 years ago. So that's what gives me the optimism. It's not a reason to stop anything. It's not a reason to stop worrying. It's not a reason to stop fighting for more support for technology change, more support for technology adoption and so on. But it is a reason for hope. I think really importantly, it is a reason to stop trying to make poor countries pay twice or three times for dealing with this problem. At the moment, they are still definitely the countries where we expect the largest impact of climate change. So they have the fewest air conditioners per capita, for example. They tend to be in places that are already richer. They tend to have less irrigated agriculture. They are the smallest contributors to the problem by orders of magnitude, if you look at their historical greenhouse gas emissions or their current greenhouse gas emissions. Two of the responses actually we're seeing internationally to deal with the problem of climate change. One is taxing goods that come from places that don't tax their own carbon outputs. That effectively means, you know, if rich countries put in a carbon tax, they will charge imports from poor countries that same carbon tax. That seems to me you know, brutally unfair. This is a problem we create and we should pay for it. And the second is taking the aid that we were talking about earlier. There's not very much of it. There's about $150 billion worldwide a year. And you know, as I said, a lot of that doesn't ever make it to developing countries. Taking that aid and repurposing it to finance richer developing countries to support their sort of transition to low carbon economies. Taking away this money that can actually have a really massive impact on the quality of life in low-income countries to deal with the problem created in rich countries is sort of abandoning the progress we've made towards global solidarity, and I think in a really evil way. And so one of the reasons I think this technological progress is really important is I hope it reduces the temptation to play that game with the little amount of global finance we have for supporting improvement of quality of life in the poorest countries. Let's zoom out to think about those areas together. If somebody is convinced by your view of these matters and they want to think about where they can use perhaps the charitable dollars or perhaps a political influence, their civic power as citizens and as activists, perhaps as writers, what are the areas where we could make changes that are going to actually have impact? I sit in this organization, the Center for Global Development, that is basically about pushing the policies of rich countries to be more favourable to global development outcomes. I sit here partially because it's a bunch of really nice people. I get a nice office. It's reasonably well paid. I like living in Washington. But also, I do actually think it is probably a pretty effective way to have an impact on improving the global quality of life over the long term. And I wish more people were excited by the idea sort of working in government or government related spaces, because I think you can have a huge impact in those spaces. And, you know, for all people might think that the commentariat is too large, and there are too many pundits out there writing about policy and so on. It's just not true. If you take the number of dollars involved and take the number of words per year produced and divide one by the other, I think words per dollar is going to be 0.00 something, right? I mean, there's just not enough people thinking about how to improve the quality of government outcomes, both for national reasons and internationally. 
And so that would kind of be my plea is however you want to support that endeavour, support that endeavour more. Of course, it is a rather self-interested plea. Well, self-insight is the first step towards wisdom or something like that. Charles Kenny, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Ash. It's a great conversation. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.